The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good evening, Wednesday Nighters. Guys awake? Everybody out there? Everybody hear me okay? All right. Hey, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, God is faithful. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, God is faithful. Good job. All right, book of Ezra. Everybody got your Bibles, notebooks, pens? Everybody got your handout? Uh, Mary Prince, bless her heart, she said that this is, uh, what is it, Mary? What? Is, what? It's lilac, lilac. But I told her it's actually boysenberry yogurt color. So she's mistaken on that, but we'll work on it. No, it really is lilac. I, I don't know, boys and boy, bo, I don't know what boysenberry yogurt is. You know. Guys, let's pray. And um, I'm going to ask you guys, as I, I kind of normally do, just going to ask you guys to take maybe 20 seconds and invite the Lord to speak to your heart. Um, that saves me a lot of time trying to have to get you, get you guys excited about hearing from the Lord. Um, something happens when we engage God with our heart and our lips and our minds um, and our souls. So take 20 seconds, engage the Lord right now, invite him to speak to you, and then we'll get into this amazing book. Father in heaven, you are so worthy of our attention. God, you're worthy of every thought that we have. You're worthy of every ounce of praise that we can conjure. God, you are faithful. You are true. You are strong. You are powerful. You are eternal. You are majestic. God, you are everything that we want, everything that we need. And tonight, Lord, would you simply through your spirit, just make much of yourself tonight. God, push me aside. Make much of yourself tonight. God, may we see you through this beautiful book. May we see you through this amazing narrative of you interacting with your people. God, we want more of you. Would you just make much of yourself, we pray in Jesus' mighty and powerful name. Amen. Amen, amen. So last night, um, I, I turned on a documentary at about nine o'clock. Um, start watching documentary. My, my wife falls asleep, and so I'm just watching this documentary, and it ended up being a two-hour-long documentary. And you know, usually that would just put me right to sleep. You know, about 15 minutes in, you just conk out. But this one didn't. It just really grabbed my attention. I ended up staying up for the whole stinking thing, right? Uh, which is a terrible idea because I got to get up early and study the next morning for this. Um, so I'm watching this documentary, it's called Divided States of America, um, and, and it's about how did our country get so divided? How did we become so polarized? I mean, why, why is it that, that, that the left and the right are just so much angst towards each other in our country? And, and that was all fine, and that was all interesting. But the part that really captured me about the documentary was they did this sort of in-depth look at Obama's last eight years in, in, the, in the office, okay? Uh, I, don't, I don't care what you think about Obama, this isn't about politics. Um, 
this is just interesting to watch a man who, who rose to the highest level uh, of authority in our country, this position of power, to watch sort of his demeanor change over those eight years. When he first got elected, he was just, he was so charismatic, right? And he was promising huge change and his whole campaign was based on change and he was gonna be the one to heal the wounds of the divisions that we've seen in our country through race divisions and all of these different things and, and we rejoiced when he was elected because this man was gonna fix everything and he promised so much. Uh, and then as his campaign sort of, or his campaign came to an end and he was elected and as his, his time in office started to play out a few years in, he started to realize that the promises that he had made were not going to be tangible, right? And that's not just a Democrat thing or a Republican. That's just a leadership as a human being, right? The promises that he made, he realized he was not going to be able to fulfill. And what was interesting in this documentary is there was one of his aides uh, was talking about a conversation he had with Obama right after he was wrestling to get Obamacare through Congress and he couldn't get it through and it was not seeming like it was going to make it. And, and Obama turns to his aide and he says this comment. He says, I feel like I'm losing track of my narrative. Now, what does he mean by that? <laughs> what, what Obama meant was is that my narrative was to be the problem solver. My narrative was to be, the, to be the, the fixer of the country's wounds. And I'm realizing that I'm not gonna be able to be that. Okay, and we as Christians, right, we know. Shocker, right? No one, not, not any president, not any leader is going to be able to fix that. But what, what I really wanted to, to highlight by bringing that up and what I thought was so interesting last night was this, is that human beings are known for over-promising and under-delivering. We promise big things. Just elect me, I'll fix it, I'll change it. Just get me in that driver's seat. I'll, I'll change everything and everything will be good after I get in there, right? And not just human beings, but life itself promises big things, right? It's, it's constantly things coming into our life that are promising but not delivering. Okay, now with that being said, God is not one of those things. Yeah, Sam, we know that. Okay, no, listen, guys. God is not one of those things. God is faithful. Can we say that again? God is faithful. Ready to say it again. God is faithful. Okay, yeah, we all know that, Sam. That's Christianity 101. No, you don't know that. We don't know that. We don't act like that. God is faithful. Revelation 19.11 says this in this, this picture of Jesus uh, in the heavenly realm. It says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. That's our God. He's faithful and he's true. In Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and he says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guilty or guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. He is faithful. We take that for granted. We take it for granted. Why is God faithful? Why is he faithful? What, why is it that God follows through on his promises? Why is, that he, why is it that he does what he says that he will do? Well, his perfection binds him to his word. His perfection demands that he follow through on his promises. You see, God is perfect. There is no issue with God. There is no fallenness with God. There is no shortcoming with God. He is eternal. He is eternally powerful. He is sovereign. There is nothing lacking in him. So when God promises something, his own divine nature demands that he fulfill that promise. 
It's not an option for God to break a promise. God who cannot lie. Well, how do I know that? 2 Timothy 2.13 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He is faithful because his own nature demands it. Deuteronomy 4.39 in the Old Testament. Know therefore that the Lord, Yahweh, your God, is God. The faithful God who keeps covenants. You say, well, yeah, but God, I mean, God delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies and God was always punishing Israel and so doesn't that mean he's not faithful? No, God never broke the covenant. He was faithful to the end, to Israel. He was never unfaithful to his people, never unfaithful to his bride. Paul to Titus, he says, God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. God cannot lie. He is faithful. He cannot do anything other than be faithful to his word. The Bible, when you read it in, in, in its totality and when you read it as a whole, it's full of these things called covenants. Okay, and covenants were these, these contracts or these agreements that God entered into with man. And God has faithfully been true to every one of those covenants. In the garden, God told Adam that through your seed, I will bring up one to crush the head of the snake. I'm talking about Satan. And he did. And he did through Christ. God told Noah that he would never flood the earth again. And he never has because he's faithful. God told Abraham that his sons would be like the stars in the sky. And they are, and they will be. And God told Moses that if Israel did not obey the law, he would exile them. And he did. Did he not? To Babylon. God told David that he would establish his dynasty forever, that his lineage, his kingly lineage would be an eternal one. And he did it through Christ. Did he not? God told Israel that he would establish them back into their land after the exile, and he did. God told Israel that one would come to set the captives free, and one did. His name was Jesus. And lastly, God told Israel that the temple would be rebuilt after it was destroyed, and he did. And that's the book of Ezra. It is another testament of God's enduring and perfect faithfulness to do what he says, to do as he promised. God gave Israel a promise through the prophet Jeremiah that though the temple was destroyed and though they were exiled from their land by Babylon, that he would bring them back and that they would rebuild the temple. And the book of Ezra is the fulfillment of God's faithfulness. Are you guys excited? Me too. Let's get to work. Ezra chapter one. I gotta say this really quick, okay? Um, I was thinking about this. I think re the way that we're supposed to read the Bible is kind of like you eat an ice cream sundae, okay? Hopefully you guys can picture an ice cream sundae. Now, when you get your ice cream sundae, uh, it's got, you know, ice cream, obviously, that's kind of the bulk of it. And then you got the, the, ch the chocolate syrup, the whipped cream, the sprinkles. If you're Craig, you have extra sprinkles, right, Craig? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, and then at the cherry on top, and that's your sundae, right? Now, you're always tempted, especially when you're a kid, to get that sundae and just kind of scrape the chocolate sauce off the top and eat the chocolate sauce on its own. And that's good, right? I mean, everybody loves chocolate sauce. 
But is it as good as when you really dig down and get all of the elements of the Sunday and put it in your mouth? Is, is it, isn't that the best? Okay, now that sounds silly, but that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. When you guys open your word and you say, you know what, Old Testament is just too hard. It's too dry. I don't get it. It's too much. I'm just going to go to the Gospels. I'm going to read about Jesus and I'm going to read the Gospels. That's great. But guess what? That's chocolate sauce. Okay? That's chocolate sauce. So you can, you can eat that. That's fine. But you're missing out on the fullness of God's word by not reading it through the lens of the entirety of God's narrative. When you understand the Old Testament, it brings power to the new. And that's why we're doing this series, this Old Testament overview, because the reality is, is that the majority of Christians in Christian evangelicalism do not know the Old Testament. Sure, they know David and Goliath. Sure, they know Noah's Ark. Um, but they don't know how the Old Testament actually matters to the new. It's just sort of these old washed up stories that don't seem to apply. God seems like he's mean and it just seems tribal and weird. It's not true. And I hope for those of you that have been joining us for, for, for a few weeks that you're starting to see some of those pieces come together. And you're starting to see how the New Testament is so much more beautiful in front of the backdrop of the Old Testament. So having said that, remember, ice cream sundae. Uh, ex, uh, Ezra, I almost said Exodus. Ezra chapter one, verse one. Now I'm, I'm gonna do things a little different tonight, guys. I'm gonna make you read a lot of scripture, and it might seem a little cumbersome, but the reason I'm doing that is because I want you guys to walk away not going, oh, that was cool, Sam taught that really well. I want you to go away being like, wow, the Bible's amazing, and I know where to find it for myself. I don't need Sam. That's the ideal, right? You guys don't need, I don't want you guys to need to be taught. I want you guys to be able to get it for yourself. So I'm gonna make you flip some places and show you some things in the scripture, and it's gonna be a lot of reading, but hopefully you guys are gonna walk away feeling like you get it. So Ezra chapter one, let's read the first two verses of the book. Um, it says this, in the first year of Cyrus, everybody say Cyrus. Cyrus, Cyrus was what? The king of Persia. Okay, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing, put it in writing. Verse two, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, these two verses are crucial because they really give you the premise of this book. It is the rebuilding of the house of God in Israel. Now, let me start here. Who is Cyrus? I, got, I just had you guys say his name. Uh, Cyrus is important. Okay, Cyrus is important. Understand the historical background of this book, okay? Uh, last week we talked about what led up to it in the book of Chronicles, but let me give you sort of a Reader's Digest version. Israel was disobedient to the Lord over and over and over and season and season and season again. Israel in the north and Judah in the south. If you remember, the, the nation of Israel was split into two, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. So after much disobedience, God chose to allow the Assyrians to come in and exile the northern kingdom. That means they ripped them out of their homeland. But the southern kingdom still seemed to have some life. They still, still seemed to be trying to reform and get back to the Lord. So God preserved the southern kingdom for a season. After that season was up, God used the Babylonian empire, okay? Babylonian empire was massive, huge empire. God used the Babylonian empire to come in and to exile the southern kingdom, like he said he would. 
Okay, now that, that, that's, okay, big deal. It's, it's a really big deal. That would be like someone coming into our country, conquering our country, and then literally pulling 95% of the people in our country away from our country into theirs. And in the, in, the, in the meantime, at the same time, thrashing, ruining all of our, our infrastructure, ruining our structures, our buildings, taking all of our money, everything, leaving our country in ruins. Imagine that. It would be a big deal. And that's what happened to both Israel and Judah. This country has been in a state of exile. All that was left was the poorest of the poor to tend the wine grapes. That's all that was left there. There's a very small amount of people left in Israel. Most of them were taken, ripped out of their homeland to Babylon. Jeremiah said, as we'll see, that they would only have to be in exile for 70 years. Well, 70 years, that's like two, three different generations could come up in that time. A lot of people would have been born in that time. But after their 70 years, something huge happened in world history. Because remember, it's not just about the, the, the Jews in Israel. This is happening in real time in the world, and a lot of world history happened. After those 70 years, something huge happened. Persia conquered Babylon. Babylon, the world-ruling empire, was literally overthrown by another empire called Persia. And the man that was at the helm of that new kingdom was named Cyrus. He was named Cyrus. Go with me really quick. I want you guys to see how the prophets in the Bible match up with the, narrative, the historical books in the Bible. So go with me really quick to Jeremiah 25, verse 10. Jeremiah, as you're flipping there, was a prophet who lived during the time of the exile and primarily lived up to the exile. So he saw it all and he knew it was coming. He told Judah over and over and over again that it was coming and they would not listen. In chapter 25, verse 10, I want you to listen to this. This is God speaking through Jeremiah concerning the Babylonians. He says, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall, sh shall serve the king of Babylon. What's he talking about? He's talking about the exile. Okay. He's talking about what I just said, that Israel would be ripped out of their homeland and exiled for a season. How long? 70 years. Verse 12. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Why does that matter? Because God literally said, I'm going to use Babylon to exile you, but then I'm going to punish Babylon. Because Babylon was a wicked nation. It was a wicked, terrible nation. So God says, I'm going to use Babylon because I'm sovereign. Because I can. I'm going to use Babylon to teach you, my beloved, uh, uh, an eternal lesson. <laughs> But then after that, I'm going to use another nation to rise up to take out Babylon. And that's exactly what happened right before the book of Ezra. Persia came up and took out Babylon just like God said he would. Now, go to one more place. This is really cool. Isaiah chapter 44. Now, Isaiah was another prophet who did not live during the exile. He actually lived about 150 years before the book of Ezra. 
And that's really cool to think about when you read this, okay? Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. And I don't know if you guys like to do this, but I love to cross-reference in my Bible. So as you're looking at Ezra, you could be cross-referencing some of these prophets, writing in uh, sort of these texts so that you can link them together in the future. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. This will blow your mind. Okay, who are we talking about again? Cyrus, right? King of the Persian Empire. Keep that in mind. Thus says the Lord, verse 24, chapter 44 of Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and make their knowledge foolish. Here's the part I want you to focus on who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. In other words, you're going to be inhabited, Jerusalem. Even though you were exiled, you're going to come back. And the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Okay, this was before Israel was ruined. This was before Judah and and, 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 uh, uh Capital city of, wow, Jerusalem. Wow, hello, I've been there. Come on, Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem, this is before Jerusalem was ruined. Isaiah is saying, I will rebuild. You can imagine them reading this, like rebuild what? What are you talking about? No, I will rebuild. God had already said he was gonna do it. Who says to the deep, verse 27, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Listen, who says of who? What is Cyrus doing here? This is 150 years before the book that we're studying. How does Isaiah know that Cyrus is going to come and take out the Babylonian empire? Maybe because he's a prophet. Maybe because God spoke through him. He is my shepherd, God says, about Cyrus. He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, what? She shall be built. Now, go back to Ezra. What did Cyrus say? What did he decree? He decreed, says the Lord stirred his heart to go and build Israel after it had been ruined. Guys, what I'm trying to say here is, God is huge. He's huge. His faithfulness is outside of time. His faithfulness happens before they were even exiled. He already was setting up how they were going to be brought back into their land through the prophet Isaiah. You look at world history and you see the world ruling empires of Persia and the world ruling empire of Babylon and the world ruling empire of the Greek and the Medo-Persian, whatever. You see those and those are putty in God's hands and he molds them in order to do whatever he wants. He caused the overthrow of the entire Babylonian kingdom just so Israel could go home. He's faithful. He's faithful. He did what he said he was going to do. He fulfilled his promise. It's absolutely amazing. And God will use whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and however he pleases to do what he pleases for you. He will because he's God and because he's faithful to his promises. When God makes promises, they are not forgotten. They are fulfilled. My point is this. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, the saying is trustworthy. Trustworthy. 
For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Listen, if we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. He is faithful. No matter what you do, he is always faithful. And he always will be faithful. And guess what? Israel was faithless. But God was still faithful to Israel. Why? Because God made a covenant with Abraham that had nothing to do with Abraham and everything to do with God's faithfulness. Now, the covenant God made with Moses, that had everything to do with how Israel acted. Israel, if you don't obey me, I'm going to exile you. That's not how we treated the covenant with Abraham. He said, Abraham, you will have sons like the stars simply because of my faithfulness. Doesn't matter what you do, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. When Paul in Romans talks about the gospel, he links the new covenant back to the Abrahamic covenant. Because his point is, is that we are saved by God's faithfulness, not by our works. How cool is that? How cool is that? God is faithful. Now, chapter two in Ezra, that's sort of chapter one. Let me give you guys a little bit of a, uh, an outline for this book. Maybe that would be helpful. Um, there's three primary groupings of these chapters. There's 10 chapters in Ezra. It's not very long. You can read it in about an hour. I would encourage you guys to do that um, this week. But the book of Ezra can be split into three groupings. The first grouping is chapter one and two. And I think I had this on your questions. Chapters one and two, and that is the return. Okay, that's simply them returning from exile. Uh, chapters, uh, let's see here, three through six is the reconstruction. Okay, so the return, the reconstruction of the temple specifically. And chapters seven through 10 is the reform. And that's where Ezra shows up and starts making reforms. That's a, a really simple, really easy outline there for you guys to use. So chapter two we get this super boring list of names. And this is where, you, you know, you start re reading Ezra and it, it's, it's confusing because you don't understand who Cyrus is and they don't understand this. And then all of a sudden you get into this list of names and then you're just frustrated. Like, what's with the lists of names in the Bible? Why is God so incessant about having huge, boring lists of names? Um, well, I want to speak to that really quick because he does it on purpose and he does it for very specific reasons. So in chapter two, we have the list of the people and the amounts of people with great specificity that chose to come back to Judah and rebuild from Babylon. And the reason for that is a few things. Number one, it, it teaches us and it shows us as we're reading this book, it shows us that not all of the Jews came back. Did you guys know that? Not all of the Jews came back. In fact, a very small amount of the Jews that were exiled by the Babylonians came back in the book of Ezra, even though the 70 years was up. Well, why? Why was that? Because there was no nation to come back to. It was the Wild West. It would have been like frontier living. Literally, the city was in ruins. There's no infrastructure. There's no government. There was just what was left. They literally were leaving the comfort and the, the, the Hollywood-esque type lifestyle of Babylon to, to, to go to basically the West where there would be nothing and no one. That's, this is the choice that they had to make. And a lot of the Jews said, I'm not going to go back there. I'm happy in Babylon. And guess what? 70 years is a long time. 70 years is long enough to where, you know, your kids and your grandkids have all been born in Babylon now. If someone migrated here 70 years ago, odds are their kids and their grandkids aren't thinking much about where they migrated from. You know, maybe grandma or great-grandma's thinking about it. The other ones aren't. 
Okay, so there was a small remnant that chose at, at this point to say, yeah, we'll go back. We'll, we'll rebuild this. And that's what these names kind of show us. The other thing to think about that's kind of interesting in that, in that um, is, is that there were some Jews that never came back. Did you know that? I mean, even, even once, you know, the next book, Nehemiah, happens and they build the wall and the city infrastructure starts to come back, there were a lot of Jews that continued to stay in Babylon. Uh, when you get to the Gospels and you see when Jesus is born and all of a sudden these people from the north, uh, the Magi, who would have been basically from Babylon, from Syria, come from the north bringing gifts and they somehow knew that Jesus was born when he was? How did they know that? Well, because they paid attention to the prophets, but why would someone up in Syria care about some Jewish baby being born? They were connected to the people that stayed. There were Jews that were still faithful to the word that lived in Babylon even after the exile returned. Isn't that cool to think about? Just kind of an interesting thing. And that's what these names can tell you. The second thing that these names and these lists can tell you is that God is a list maker. I always make fun of my wife because she loves to make lists. And where we talk about doing something, she's like, I'm going to make a list really quick of all these things. And, and she just thinks in lists, right? And that's a godly attribute. God makes lists. He's a list maker. Uh, he, he writes down names in the book of life, okay? Uh, he cares about the details. And what I think is cool is, is for us, it's a boring lineage. For these people, it, 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 it's something around their neck that, that God is blessing them with to say that they were the ones that chose to go back and build, they were the ones, and forever they are recorded in God's living and eternal word as the people that chose to go back and build the house of God. I want to be written in a list like this for building the house of God now. The living stones, right? How cool is that to think about? But the third reason that we have lists like this, like chapter two, is it gives validity to the scripture. It takes it from being this fairy tale, uh, you know, epic romance, whatever, something. It, it, it takes it from being some kind of a, a made up story to being reality. These were real people. These were real people that made the journey from the north and Persia into Judah and rebuilt. This really happened. This is history. It really happened. Okay. It's important to think about that. Now, after they arrive there, okay, chapters one and two, as I said, are just them traveling back to Judah. After they arrive, the next three chapters details the rebuilding of the temple. Okay, so let's take a look really quick at chapter three, verse one and two. They start to build, but they do something very specifically first, and I just want to highlight it for you guys. Chapter three, verse one says, when the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns. So they're, they're there. They've made the trip. They're in the towns of Israel. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, by the way, you'll see that name come up a lot. It's really fun to say. Uh, Zerubbabel was sort of the leader of that time. He wasn't a king, but he was more of a governor. He was the one that led the first group back to rebuild. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel with his kinsmen. And listen right here. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they did something before they did anything else. Okay, before they laid a single stone down to build the foundation um, of the temple, they did something else. What did they do? They built an altar. They built an altar. It, it, they, they knew that the most important thing that they could do before they did anything else was to start sacrificing to the Lord. Okay, now that sounds archaic and weird. 
But for them, that was the means that God had given them to make atonement for their sin. And you know what this says about them? It says that they learned a few lessons in exile. They learned that the reason they were exiled was not because they couldn't fight off the Babylonians. God could have done that. The reason they were exiled was because God was not the center of Israel. God was not the center of Judah. That's why they were exiled. And so here they are 70 years later, their city's in ruins and they're looking to build it. And they say, you know what? The first thing we need to do is we need to begin to offer atonement. And the point is simply this, guys. It does not matter what you do in life if the foundation of that is not the gospel. If the foundation of what you do in life is not the atonement, and what I mean by that is if it is not built on the all-sufficient receiving of God's grace for you, it will not last. It will not last. They chose to lay the true foundation of the temple. And the true foundation is not stones. The true foundation is needing to be forgiven by God. Now, as New Testament Christians, as New Covenant Christians, we can choose to either do things in our own works, or we can choose to do things on the foundation of the completely, uh, the completed work of God's forgiveness. Okay? Learn from these guys. They said, you know what, before we do anything, we need to set up the altar because there needs to be atonement made for our sins. And then the next thing they do is even cooler. Look at chapter three, verse 10. So now keep in mind, they haven't built the whole structure yet. They've only built the foundation. Okay, the foundation is laid. And then in verse 10, here's what they do. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. How cool is that? All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house was laid. Okay, what are they worshiping for? It's just the foundation. Like, if you guys ever build a house and you lay the slab? You don't have a party. <laughs> have all your friends, hey, we're having a slab warming party. You know, like, come on out, bring a jacket. It's a little cold, you know. Uh, like, you don't do that. You, you, you celebrate when the house is done. But they chose to celebrate when the foundation was laid, which I, I think is, is really cool. And, and again, what I think that speaks to is the simple fact that they saw the foundation of God's house not as stones and not as brick and mortar, but as atonement and as worship. They saw that all that really mattered for them to be restored into the presence of God was worship. It was starting with worship. The starting point wasn't having the temple built. The starting point was worship. Okay? And, and the reality is, 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 I'm the worship pastor, so I'm passionate about this, is we can do all we want in this church to try to make this church grow and, and be healthy and all of these things. If worship is not the foundation, it doesn't really matter what we do. It doesn't really matter. If we are not people that are overwhelmed by God's grace to where our lives are worship, then we're just building nothing. We're building junk. We're building a program. We're building something that, that really is literally just church culture. The foundation needs to be a, a sense of being overwhelmed by God's grace and God's presence. 
That needs to be the foundation of everything that, that you do. The funny thing is this, is, is how do you worship, though, when your life feels like it's chaos? And, and the reason I say that is because think about, the, think about the, the scene that they're worshiping in. They're worshiping God for the slab, and, and, and around them is chaos. Their, their city's not restored. Their wall's not built. The government is not put in place. They're still under the reign of Persia. What are they, why are they worshiping? What are they worshiping about? Because ultimately, everything around them is still crazy. But listen to this. Faith, faith is such confidence in the faithfulness of God that worship precedes completion. Okay, let me say that again. Faith is such confidence in the faithfulness of God that worship precedes completion. It means in our lives right now, everything is not completed about us, right? We're being sanctified. I don't know, but you guys, I'm not a completed work. I'm not even close. I'm not a completed work. And the reality is God is still working in me and working on me. I am not a finished product, but the foundation has been laid through Christ. True faith says, God, I'm gonna worship you as though I am a completed work because I know that you are faithful to make me completed. Not, yeah, God, I'll worship you once I'm completed because I'm not so sure whether you're gonna fall through. No, he's faithful. Worship him now as though you're completed because God doesn't see you as incomplete. He sees you as finished. That's why on the cross he said it is finished. And true faith says, God, I know you're gonna follow through and I'm gonna worship you as if you already had. I love that. They worship God when the foundation is laid. It's amazing. Chapter four. We start to see the adversaries. I'm about to speed up a little bit here. The adversaries oppose the work. Some people of the land come to the Jews as they're building the temple and they say, hey, we want to help. And the Jews say, no way. <laughs> no way. Not going to happen. We want this thing to be done right. We want it to be done holy. We want it to be done focused. And we don't want you guys bring in whatever it is that you want to bring, okay? They, they said, no way. Well, they weren't really happy about that. These native people, these, these people that were in, inhabitants of Judah. So they begin to discourage the people, it says, of Judah and make them afraid to build and bribe counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, okay? Shocker, whenever we start to do God's work, what happens? We get attacked, we get attacked. Opposition comes. They're doing God's work and opposition is coming. So these locals are doing everything they can to frustrate and discourage them and it's not working. So they take it to the next level. They pull out paper and pen and they write a letter to the new king. It's not Cyrus anymore. Some time has passed. Okay. It's not Cyrus anymore. It's a new king named Artaxerxes. They write a letter to Artaxerxes saying, these Jews are going to be a problem if they keep building this temple. Look at history Okay, they don't like being ruled. They don't like being subservient under the other countries. They're gonna rebel. Don't let them rebuild the temple. And this new king, Artaxerxes, who didn't really care or know why Cyrus sent them, says, you're right, stop the work. And the temple stops, the building stops. Now, did God tell them to stop? No, who told them to stop? The king. Who cares what the king says, <laughs> Right? If our government comes in and says, hey, you cannot have church, are we going to stop having church? Heck no. We're just going to do it in houses. Big deal. Church is going to happen, right? It's going to happen. So the, the king tells them to stop. God did not. And, and here's, here's one thing to think about. 
all the enemy can truly do when God is the one at the, at, at, at the reins, all the enemy can do is lie to you. God's in control of your sanctification. God is in control of making you into the man or the woman that he will make you. God is in control of getting you to heaven. And all Satan can do, he has no power. All he can do is lie to you. Just like this story. All they could do is lie. All they could do is write letters to the king and say, oh, watch out. But look and notice how God combats this. This is cool. Look and notice how God combats these accusations. In chapter five, verse one, what does it say? Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now the prophets, enter the prophets. Okay, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Do those guys sound familiar to you? Haggai and Zechariah. Can anybody tell me why they're in the Bible? They have their own books. Okay, Haggai and Zechariah. There's literally a book of Haggai and a book of Zechariah. And so you can go read those now and understand that those books were written into this scene. Pretty cool, right? Okay, so Haggai and Zechariah were sent by the Lord into this scene. Um, and they prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the leader, the son of Sheltiel and Jeshua, the son of Jezodak, whatever, uh, arose and began to rebuild the house of God. Now, why are they rebuilding the house of God? Did the king say anything? No. As far as the king is concerned, they still shouldn't be. What changed? The truth of God was injected into this situation. The prophet stepped onto the scene and said, why are you guys stopping? God didn't say to stop. Get to work. The truth brought them back to obedience. The truth tethered them to what God's ultimate plan was in the first place. Even though man always will stray from God's plan, the truth tethers us to it, doesn't it? It keeps us holding fast to what God wants us to be doing. They do it before the permission was granted. I love that. And you say, but wait a minute, but they were disobeying the the king. You know, I mean, wouldn't that put them in danger? The king could come in and just smash them? Yeah, totally. There's a cost of discipleship. Jesus said, hey, you could come and follow me. The government's probably gonna kill you. In fact, they will. In fact, take up your cross because when you see me die, just count on the fact that you will probably, in fact, you will die just like I did. That was the call of Jesus, okay? Not the call of most megachurches. That's the call of Jesus. He said, hey, come and die. That sounds terrible, right? Unless Jesus, the treasure himself, is the reason you're leaving, then it doesn't really matter. What is your life? It's nothing, okay? So God says through the prophets, obey me. Don't obey, don't obey Artaxerxes. Who is he? He's nothing. Obey me. And the prophets led them back to that. Now, I just want to say one point on that in regards to how we read the Bible, okay? Do not read the Bible to feel a certain way. Don't read the Bible because when you open it, you feel um, spiritual or you feel encouraged. Now, if you, if you feel spiritual and you feel encouraged, that's great. Awesome. If that's the reason for reading the Bible, you'll never read Because nine times out of 10, you're going to pick it up, you're going to be sleepy, and it's not going to make you feel what you want to feel. Don't read the Bible just to feel a certain way. Read the Bible, listen, to think a certain way. Read the Bible because your mind is in dire need of being tethered to reality of God's faithfulness. 
Because your mind will stray from God's plan and mission. If you do not come back to this continually, subjecting yourself humbly to the authority of God's living word, you will stray. You need to be reminded who God is. You need to be reminded who you are. You need to be reminded of what your mission is. And the world cannot give you that. Just can't. God's word tethers you. So they give up work. Why? God didn't say to you. They give up work because they lean to their own understanding. And God says, hey, through the prophecy and the living word, let me tell you, get back to work. We have to come back continually to the word of God, not to feel a certain way, but to think a certain way, because we need to be in step and in line with God's heart and God's ultimate and eternal will. Now, I was going to take you guys to Haggai and show you kind of what he said and, and his prophecies because they're really cool. But homework, check out the book of Haggai. Check out the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is amazing. It's these dreams that Zechariah has that literally, it, it's the prophecies of what God was going to do in Israel and the immediate and in the eternal. Some amazing, amazing pictures in that book. And they took place right here in this context. So go and check out Haggai's two chapters. It's super short. It's like, I think it's the second shortest book in the Bible. So after 20 years, finally the work is done. <laughs> the, the temple is finished 20 years from the time that Cyrus sent him out. Now it's finished just in time to celebrate Passover feast, which you can imagine would be an amazing moment. After, actually, after uh, 90 years, now the temple, right, is finished. And they're back in their homeland celebrating the Passover meal. It would just be an incredible moment. Now from chapters uh, six on, or chapter seven on, I should say, we have sort of a change in direction. The first six chapters are about building the temple, and the last three chapters are about reforming the people, okay? And this is where the character Ezra enters in. It's kind of funny, he's actually not in the book as much as you'd think, considering it's named after him. Um, but Ezra enters towards the end of the book, and Ezra, who is Ezra? Ezra was a scribe, and he was a priest. A scribe, uh, what a scribe's job basically was, it was to write down the scriptures. Um, you guys, this may be a shock to you, but they didn't have printers back then. Uh, so printing press wasn't invented until a long time later. So guess what? If you wanted your own personal Bible, you didn't go to the Bible bookstore and get it. Um, you know, there was no personal Bible. Scribes would literally painstakingly write out the law of God over and over and over and over again, and they did it with insane accuracy. And that's the way they would reproduce the scriptures. Okay? So Ezra is a scribe and a priest. Uh, but what that means is that he was meticulously studied in the law of God. He knew the Mosaic law like the back of his hand. And it's not uncommon in Jewish culture to literally memorize huge chunks of scriptures. In fact, many priests would memorize the entirety of the Torah itself, or even the Pentateuch itself. Okay, so this is Ezra, and God sends him as the second wave to Israel to finish the work. Now, the work of the temple has been built, but the people still need to be reformed. Because the people, even though they're in their homeland, they still are so resemblant of the pagan culture around them. It's something I think Jeff's talked to you guys about before called syncretism. Everybody say syncretism. You sound really smart if you say a word like syncretism. Uh, syncretism just basically means that you're syncing to the culture around you. You're becoming, you're morphing to the people that are around you. This is what Paul was worried about with the Jews uh, or with the, um, I'm sorry, with the Christians being around the, the um, Hellenistic and the Greek cultures. He said, don't become like them. Don't become like them because you're around them. So Ezra comes in, he realizes that, man, these people of God look a lot like 
the Persians and the Babylonians. In fact, they've taken wives from the Persians and the Babylonians. They've taken wives outside of the children of Israel. And I'm going to speed this up. Basically, the last three chapters is Ezra reforming and trying to get them back to where they needed to be. Now, I have seven minutes for application. Perfect. (laughs) Um, What is the point of the book of Ezra? Everybody take a deep breath. I'm mostly the one that needs to take a deep breath because I'm talking and you guys aren't. What is the point of this book? Um, I printed this for you guys. I actually made this. So if there's any spelling, actually, no, I didn't make this. If there's any spelling errors, I didn't make it. Um, No, I just threw this together really quick um, to show you guys in more in depth uh, sort of a, a, an outline for this book. And, and really what this does is for self-study, you can see how every single chapter in this book points to the faithfulness of God. It points to the faithfulness of God. It all illustrates how God was faithfully fulfilling his promises. So take that home, um, use that. But what is the point of Ezra? It, it, it's, it's allowing us to see that God is faithful. As I said in the beginning, it's allowing us to see that God is faithful. Faithful, But what if you're, what if you're here tonight and you say, okay, I hear, I hear that. Sam, you're saying God is faithful. But I don't feel like I see God's faithfulness. I don't feel like I see God's faithfulness. What do you, um, you know, you're, you're feeling that way tonight. Well, I just want to look really quickly at two ways to miss God's faithfulness. Okay? So two ways that you might be missing God's faithfulness. And then we'll close. The first one is this. The first way that you can miss God's faithfulness, like not see his faithfulness, is to focus on the past without seeing the present. Focus on the past without seeing the present. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 10, uh, I'm just going to read it because I don't have time. In chapter 3, verse 10, uh, it's, it's the part where the foundation is laid and they're worshiping, and we talked about that, and, and they're having this big worship service praising God for the foundation. But there was a part that I left out. Um, even though the majority of the Jews were worshiping God, so excited that this foundation had been laid and the temple was going to be built, not everyone was. If you guys remember, there was actually a- another group, and this group, no offense if you're older in here, this was the older group, okay? The older group, the group that actually remembered the former temple. It actually remembered what Solomon's temple would be like. Now, they'd have to be at least in their 80s, right, um, to, to be able to remember this. But this was the elders of Israel. And so there's, there's two different reactions happening. The younger people are there, and they're seeing God's faithfulness manifest uh, in this moment. And they're worshiping the sons of Asaph, are blowing horns, and there's symbols, and it's amazing. And then at the same time, Ezra says, there's weeping. Weird. There's rejoicing, and there's weeping. The people are weeping because they're looking back and saying, it's not like it used to be. It was so much greater in Solomon's day because, you see, all of the ornamentation and all the vessels and all the gold and all the treasure was still in Persia. It had not been brought back yet. It did get brought back with Ezra, but at this point, it wasn't there. And it's a slab. They're disappointed. God, you said through Jeremiah, you're going to deliver us back into this land, and now we're here, and this is lame. They weep. They're missing God's faithfulness because they're so focused on what was and what used to be. They completely missed it. Jesus talks about something like this when he talks about wine. He says, don't put new wine in old wineskins. What's he talking about? Because new wine expands. And if you put new wine into an, an old wineskin, it will burst and go everywhere and it'll spoil. 
What Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm coming to do a new work. And if you're stuck in Judaism, you're gonna miss it. And our Jewish brothers do, don't they? They miss it. But I think that applies to us in even, even a more specific. Here's a few things I hear all the time as a pastor. Yeah, you know, heritage is cool. Um, but man, my church used to, whatever. You know how many times I hear that? Um, that's cool, praise the Lord. I'm glad that you, you know, everyone needs to have great experiences at their churches. But I, I've seen people leave this church over and over and over and over again because it's not what they remember about something else. Yeah, I remember back in Chuck Smith's day and the Jesus movement. And, that's great. I'm so glad the Jesus movement happened. I would not be here right now if it weren't for the, 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 the downstream effect of the Jesus movement. But for crying out loud, God's trying to do a new work. Okay, so don't be so stuck in what it used to be. Don't be so stuck in what your life used to be, what you used to be like, what your devotional life used to be like. God works in seasons and he ebbs and he flows and he's doing new things. And if you are not experiencing the faithfulness of God, you need to get your eyes off the past and get it on the present. God is working at heritage. He's working at heritage. He's working through discipleship. He's working through t teaching in the Bible. We have hundreds of women now that are studying the word in this room on Tuesday, uh, when is it? Tuesday nights and Thursday mornings. Got this backwards. Whatever. Doesn't matter. We got so much happening in this church that God is doing. So much of God's faithfulness is being manifest. And people come in and they leave simply because it isn't what they remember about something else. Open your eyes. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Open your eyes and see God's faithfulness. And that's just in the church realm. In a personal sense, if you do not see God's faithfulness in your life, you're not looking. Open your eyes and see God's faithfulness in the present. He is delivering you in the present. He's working in your life now. Seasons are seasons. <laughs> if things never changed, we would never grow, right? This is true. If we sat in the same seat, for 30 years at church and heard the same person preach the same message at the same church over and over again and read the same devotional every morning, you would not grow. You wouldn't. Seasons are important. Seasons help us grow. And listen to me, guys. Just because you don't see God's faithfulness doesn't mean that he's not faithful. It just means you're not looking. Here's the second way that you miss God's faithfulness or the second way that you can miss God's faithfulness. Not only to focus on the past without seeing the present, but also, number two, to make too much of the present and not see the future. To make too much of the present and not see the future. See, it's interesting. Uh, we look back from our vantage point of 2,000 years later after Christ, and, or actually, I should say about 2,500 years after this event in Ezra. We look back and we go, why were they getting so excited about a temple for that just sounds lame. I mean, we got the living word of God. The Holy Spirit has been sent. We have this completed work of God that we can look to and hear and understand who God is. I mean, literally, we have so much in this new covenant that they did not have then. And we can look back and say, man, that was, that was so much better now, right? Okay. How much more will we look back and the eternal fulfillment of God's kingdom when we are in perfection with him at his feet and his glory is warming our skin. There's no sun because he is the sun and his radiance pours out and every single person's eyes are filled with tears of joy. We will look back and be like, I can't believe how much we didn't have, how much more of God there was. And I wanna encourage you guys don't miss out on what God's doing 
But don't forget how much more he has. Don't forget how much more he's doing. See, they were sitting here. They had no clue that Messiah would come in the way that he came. That God would send his Holy Spirit in a new and a fresh way. That God would write his law on our hearts. They didn't understand what that meant. And just like that, we sit here today. And yes, it's been spoken to us through Revelation and different books. But we have no clue what God has in store for us. We have no clue. But we should sit like little kids on Christmas Eve just anticipating the fullness of God. I can't wait to see what the kingdom of God is going to look like. It's not going to be sitting on a cloud. We're going to work jobs. We're going to have friendships. We're going to explore. And God is going to reveal himself and his eternality in ways that will blow our mind every day. And you'll never be bored of it. You'll never be sorrowful. You'll never be sick. You'll never want anything. You'll never look in the mirror and hate your body. You'll never think any of those things because God will be enough. He'll be at the center. He will be eternal. And he'll be all satisfying. That's enough reason to get up in the morning. That's enough. God's faithful in the past. He's faithful in the present. He's faithful in the future. And if you're not seeing it, my guess is you're not looking. And why does Ezra matter? Because Ezra reminds us that God's faithfulness to Israel is the same faithfulness that he has for you and I, church. Because we're grafted into that. That's why Paul said that we are this wild branch grafted in. We're one now. And God's faithfulness to Israel is God's faithfulness to the church. Good news, amen? Let's stand. Lord, I so look forward to seeing your eternal kingdom. I thank you that your kingdom is coming, but yet it's still here. As you said, Jesus, the kingdom has come but it is coming. And Lord, I pray that we would be those that live in the moments, take advantage of every second, enjoy you in every moment, but are so eager for what's to come. Would you have given us so much? You've given us your presence through the spirit. You've given us perfection through the cross. Lord, your faithfulness dates back past Adam. It's in eternity's past. You predestined us, foreknew us. Lord, you're so good to us. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be filled with worship as we live our lives and go about our business. God, that you would not be a part of our life, but that you would be our life. God, that we would not add you to the clutter, but that the clutter would be fit in to you at the center. And that, God, we would seek first the kingdom. And then all things would be added. Jesus, thank you for saving us. God, thank you that you're our father. We thank you for the book of Ezra and for the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you Sunday.